Today we're going to talk about Stephen's ministry. Um, I often get my best ideas in the shower, and this morning when I was showering, I thought another subtitle could be The Newness of the New Covenant. I think that's why Stephen is getting in trouble. I said, I think. So it's still not the official title. Really, this text may sound very different from what we've been studying so far in Acts, but it fits perfectly in the context of Acts. Last week, we looked at Acts 6, 1 to 7. Hellenist widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. The apostles respond by appointing seven men from the Hellenists to fix this problem. And then Acts 6, 7, and 8 are the ministries of two of these seven men, Stephen and Philip. And what they're going to do fits perfectly in line with Jesus's commission at the beginning of the book of Acts in Acts 1.8, where he told the, the apostles to be his witnesses in Jerusalem first, then Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. And so what we see in these three chapters is a shift. So far, we've been in Jerusalem, but following the ministries of these two men, It shifts from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And so with these chapters, the the church is going global. This is where uh, Jesus' international ministries are beginning. And so this text fits within the greater framework of the book of Acts. Other thing I can say about that is there are three themes that are key in the book of Acts that we find here. First is that Stephen's work is he's continuing the work of Jesus. We're going to look at a few parallels between what Jesus did and now Stephen. Um, Stephen bears witness to the resurrected king, and the result is the expansion of the kingdom of God. And uh, finally, um, Acts is the account, a theological history of the new of the early days, the new covenant community. And what we've seen already is there are threats, external threats with persecution and internal threats. And every time we see God uses it for his own purposes, nothing can impede God's plans. And we see that again in this text. And so I've already alluded to this. We have four movements uh, in the text that we've read. The first were charges are being brought against Stephen. And that's Acts 6, 8 to 15. And then he has his long defense in Acts 7, 1 to 50. And then he attacks. He moves to the offense in Acts 7, 51 to 53. And then we're going to find five results or consequences of this speech in Acts 7, 54, 8 to 3. Okay, so first we're going to look at the charges quite quickly. Verses 8 to 15 of Acts 6. So this is the background, verse 8. If you're following along in your Bibles in verse 8, we read that Stephen is full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. In response, verse 9, members of the synagogue of the freedmen rose up against Stephen. They see to it, in verses 11 to 14, that Stephen is put on trial before elders and scribes, and then they bring false accusations against him. If that sounds familiar, yes, they kind of treated Jesus the same way. This is the accusation. 
that Stephen spoke blasphemous words against Moses and God. That's verse 11. Not very clear, but then verses 13 and 14 um, offer clarification. So Stephen spoke against God by saying that Jesus would destroy the temple. And he spoke against Moses by, by claiming that Jesus was going to change the customs that Moses delivered. These charges are still relevant for us today. I think if we're, as Christians, we could be accused of both these things from Jews today who, who, who have not gotten on the Jesus train. So the first way we would be charged the same way Stephen was charged uh, is we have a different understanding of the temple than the Jews do. The temple is where God dwells. It symbolizes God's presence with his people. Acts 2 taught us that the Holy Spirit now lives in those who believe in Jesus. So this means that individually as Christians and collectively as the church, we are the temple of the living God. In believing this, the same charges brought against Stephen could be brought against us. The second way that the charges against Stephen are relevant to us as well is that we have a different understanding of the law uh, that Moses gave us than the Jews would. And so the charge against Moses is understa- uh, the charge that he is speaking against Moses is understandable as well. In the history of the Christian church, we have struggled to know what to do with the law of Moses. There's a lot of disagreement still today, depending on what church you go to, what to do with the law of Moses. But generally, Christians agree that the coming of Jesus in some way changes our relationship to this law. Jesus said he fulfilled the law. And another aspect is the church is not a nation like Israel was. And so just by extension, there are some things that we simply cannot apply. But really, practically, we keep the moral aspects of the law. It doesn't mean the rest is no longer valid. We still uphold and believe in all the principles that we draw from the law. But in practice, we keep the moral aspects of the law, like the Ten Commandments. So we could also be charged of um, changing the customs that Moses delivered. So now we're going to look at the defense in Acts 7, 1 to 50. And so this is the big picture. It was a long reading, a long portion. If you're going to remember this for anything else, it's just I spoke for way too long or not. Maybe you loved it. I hope you loved it. It is God's word. And here Stephen has given us a survey of a lot of the Old Testament. Stephen highlights Abraham then Joseph, then Moses, and then he speaks about the tabernacle and the temple. What he does in those 50 verses, he does three things, and he does it more than once. It's kind of he's, he's doing four case studies, and he's repeating the same things. So, well, first thing he teaches, God has always operated outside of the temple. Remember, he's trying to defend himself against his charges. He's saying God has always operated outside of the temple. Second, he's being 
accused of being too closely tied to Jesus. And he's saying the people throughout Israel's history have always failed to see what God was doing and they have rejected his agents of deliverance. We're going to see that again. And thirdly, he's being accused of breaking the law of Moses. He's going to accuse Israel of doing that very thing. That's what he's going to do through these different um, accounts. So just beginning quickly with Abraham in Acts 7, 2 to 8. Stephen says that the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. So if you're studying this text later, highlight all the different places that that are mentioned that are outside of the promised land. So Mesopotamia, verse 2. Then he adds in verse 4, it was the land of the Chaldeans, which, by the way, is Babylon. So he's telling Israel that God appeared to Abraham in Babylon. On the same theme, he states that Abraham was a sojourner in the promised land and never possessed any of it. The point being, possessing the promised land is not necessary for, to be faithful to God. Now we transition to Joseph in verses 9 to 16. These verses show that the patriarchs who represent Israel mistreated Joseph. Israel rejected God's agent for protection. And and then we read also that God was with Joseph in Egypt. Again, that theme of God operates outside of the promised land, outside of the temple. Skipping to Moses now in verses 17 to 43. Those three points are going to appear. So first he reveals Stephen... um, highlights the fact that God operates outside of the temple, outside of the promised land. God appeared to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, and he called that wilderness holy ground. So if you think of the holy land, this was a holy land outside of the holy land. He tells Moses to remove his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And then he tells, he, he, uh, de- God declares to Moses that he is also present in Egypt. And he says he has seen the affliction of his people in Egypt. And that's verse 34. Then Stephen comes back to the second theme that Israel rejects God's chosen instruments. In verse 35, Stephen states that God appointed Moses as both a ruler and a redeemer, but the people rejected him. In verse 37, Stephen addresses the third theme that it is actually Israel who rejected Moses, not him. Because Moses announced that one day a prophet like him would come to whom the people would have to listen. Stephen is saying, Believing in Jesus is actually obeying Moses. And so if you don't believe in Jesus, you are disobeying or rejecting what Moses taught. And then another way that Stephen shows the people of Israel uh, rejected Moses is by retelling the story of the golden calf. I wish I could get into details, but no time today. And so then in verses 44 to 50, Stephen turns to the So we did Abraham, Joseph, Moses, now temple and tabernacle in his survey. So the tabernacle was a tent that the people of Israel had 
to worship until Solomon built the temple. In Acts 7.48, Stephen quotes Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 to show the temple's limitations. God says in Isaiah 62, 1 and 2, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? So not to dismiss the temple. The temple was important for Old Testament, for Old Covenant worship. But the people had turned it into an idol. Stephen's defense is still applicable for us today. So if you remember the accusations against him, that uh, he was minimizing the role of the temple, and by doing so, he was attacking God. And then the second accusation was that he was changing the law of Moses. To defend himself, this is recap, he makes three arguments over 50 verses. One, that throughout Israel's history, God has operated outside of the temple. And two, the people have always failed to see what God was doing and rejected his agents of salvation. And third, it is actually Israel who is breaking Moses' laws. And so these points are relevant for us. A first application is that God operates more broadly than what we can imagine. This is a real story. In 1912, a medical missionary, Dr. William Leslie, went to live and minister to tribal people in a remote corner of what is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. After 17 years of labor there, he returned to the United States, a discouraged man, believing he failed to make an impact for Christ and died nine years after his return. About 13 years ago, two men with a team went in that region and they discovered a network of reproducing, reproducing churches hidden uh, in the jungle uh, across the Quilu River from Vanga, where this missionary was stationed about 100 years before that. So this is what we learned. God works everywhere even in places we expect it the least. He works in the jungle of the Congo. He also works in the European Parliament. He works in schools. He works in universities. He works in our families, even if you are the only believer. He works in our workplaces. So ends up maybe an application for the church at large is, We need to recognize that God is present and changing lives and working in churches that are very different than our own. I know sometimes it's hard to to accept that, but he is worshipped and he is changing lives in churches we may have think have uh, important differences of opinions on. So that's an application for all of us. Um, A second application is that It is possible that in some areas of our lives, we oppose God and reject what he teaches and may even condemn godly voices. We see it throughout church history, so we probably still see it today. If we look back just a few hundred years ago, a man named Jan Hus and William Tyndale were both burned for speaking against abuses in the Catholic Church. 
I think perhaps Russell Moore, an American, may be a modern example. He was a leader in the Southern Baptist Convention. He criticized how it handled uh, racism and sexual abuse allegations. And he's been getting death threats ever since. And he claims that some people are from within his convention. So there is continuity. The religious rejected Jesus. Many rejected the reformers. Many Christians were on the wrong side of the slave trade. Today, uh, Christian ethics will offend people and will also offend Christians. Mm -hmm. Called to repentance from nationalism at the expense of love for the kingdom of God. Called to repent from idolatry at the expense of the worship of God calls to repent from sexual immorality at the expense of a gospel-proclaiming marriage, calls to repent from individualism at the expense of forming deep community, calls to repent from racism and discrimination, will go unheeded, and, the, and godly voices will be shut down, and sometimes by Christians. That is the pattern. Third movement uh, in our text, now Stephen is changing to attack. He's done defending himself. Now he's going to attack his hearers. Verse 51 to 53. So verse 51 marks a huge shift in Stephen's speech. He turns from third person, for those who know your grammar, to second person. He goes from they, Israel in the past, to now you, not you, uh, but you, uh, Stephen, who, who are his hearers. He lists some of the harshest accusations against his contemporary Jews. Stephen calls them, you stiff-necked people. And that's an insult that appears over and over. For first time, it's mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, follows the golden calf incident. What has a stiff neck? a golden calf, or an ox. Essentially, he, it's, it's an accusation saying, you have become like what you worship, unable to be directed, or like idols, blind and deaf. But anyway, that expression refers connecting them to the object of their worship. A second particularly targeted charge against them is that they are uncircumcised. Though physically, they are the circumcised people. Stephen calls them uncircumcised in heart and, he, and ears, and they resist the Holy Spirit. Finally, Stephen's third charge brings all of Israel's past sins onto his hearers. He says, as your fathers did, so all the bad stories, now so do you. Still in verse 51. Their fathers persecuted and killed the prophets, and now they have murdered the they have murdered God's righteous one, referring to Jesus. At the beginning of the account, they accuse Stephen of changing the customs of Moses. Stephen ends in verse fifty three, accusing them specifically of breaking the law of Moses. Stephen's accusations against the Jews of his day can be, could apply to us as well. 
Following Jesus and worshipping the true and living God is not a matter of herd religion, where we blindly follow what many people are doing around us. And so circumcision in the Old Covenant, baptism in the New Covenant does not save anyone. What is required is that we be born again. We need circumcised hearts that submit to the Holy Spirit and that wants to delight in the law of God and obey it. Of course, in light of Jesus' coming and the New Testament teachings. But we are stiff-necked when we cannot be led, when we refuse to be corrected, when we are too probably focused on our golden Curves And these golden curves can be gods of popularity, comfort, wanting to be in control, sometimes money, the god of beauty, spending too much time worried about our appearance. But our action plan is simple, and we keep coming back to this, Acts 2, 41 to 47. We need to enjoy fellowship with Christ, fellowship with his body. It's when we have deep intimate, joyful, loving relationships that we are ourselves more likely to want to do the right thing, but have people around us to guide us, to point out the different idols in our lives. When we, as a church, focus on worship, on intentional care for one another, praying for one another, studying the scriptures together, When we organize our lives around Jesus and what he did on the cross, uh, that in everything we would want to make him known, we're able to, with the help of others, repent and turn away from our idols, that this accusation could not rightfully be brought against us. Now, fourth point, we're looking at the results of Stephen's speech. I found five in verses 55 uh, Acts seven fifty four to eight three. The first result is anger. In seven fifty four, the speech is over. Luke shifts back to the narrative, and those who heard were enraged. This word only appears one other time in the New Testament, and it's in Acts five thirty three. And what follows this word in Acts five thirty three is they wanted to kill them. So this kind of anger is anger, a murder in your heart kind of anger. The second result is that we see Jesus's posture towards Christians. In 755, Stephen gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. This expression is so intriguing. So when we hear of Jesus being at the right hand of the Father, he is sitting at his right hand. One of the responsibilities of the Son of Man was to judge. And so at Stephen's trial, he is being deemed guilty by the mob who are acting as his judges. But Jesus here, the true judge, stands to offer his verdict and to welcome Stephen home. And so we too, with this picture, can witness confidently. At times we will encounter rage. Like Stephen, we can know that if we are in Christ, the true judge rejoices 
He's cheering us on and will welcome us. The third result is violence. In Acts 7.57, those present cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. So this loud cry and blocking their ears are to stop hearing Stephen, whom they thought was blaspheming. According to Philo, he was a first century Jewish historian. Blasphemy was an insult to the pious. He wrote that when blasphemy enters into the ears, it pervades the whole soul. So kind of this explanation makes sense of what they're doing, crying out so they can't hear him, blocking their ears, because they're, they're, they think that he's speaking blasphemy. And it's also confirmed by what we read in Leviticus 24, 14 to 16, that says that those who blaspheme, the, the, the punishment is to be stoned outside the camp. And that is exactly what they're going to do with Stephen in Acts 7. 58. The fourth result is witness to Christ in death. Just before his death in Acts 7:60, Stephen echoes Jesus's words on the cross. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. This recalls Jesus's words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. From Luke 23, 34. Stephen is called a martyr because he does not waste this injustice. With his final words, even in death, he bore witness to the love of Christ. As one who is forgiven, he could forgive his killers and show the radical love of God. The fifth result is that God's kingdom expands even more. So God uses Stephen's death for his purposes. According to Acts 8.1, on the day of Stephen's death, there arose a great persecution against the church and then they spread to Judea, Samaria. That's an echo back to Acts 1.8, where Jesus said that was the second region that people were to be his witnesses. And so what the persecutors used for evil, God uses for good. And this transitions, um, this is a transition in the book of Acts. The gospel is going global. To conclude, uh, this account of Stephen fits perfectly in Luke's theological history of the early Christian church that's in Acts. First, in Stephen, Jesus continues what he began to do in his ministry. Um, early on, at the first verse in our text, Acts 6, 8, said that uh, Stephen did wonders and signs. Wonders and signs in that order only appears four times, all in the book of Acts. They're associated with Moses, with Jesus, the apostles, and then with Stephen in, verse, in Acts 6, 8. It's kind of a, a link to show Stephen is continuing what Jesus began to do. Similar accusations that were brought up against Stephen were made against Jesus in Matthew 26, 61, speaking against the temple and weren't too sure what, what his deal was with the law of Moses. Finally, Stephen embodied Christ's love by forgiving his enemies who put him to death, as we've just seen. There are some implications for us. In presenting Stephen as one who imitates Jesus, 
Luke is inviting us to do likewise. For most of us, we will not have to die for our faith, but it is not beyond the fate God has for some Christians. We can follow Jesus to the end. And this means that no matter what our situation, God allows us to endure. We need to keep on loving those who want to harm us. In practice, it is going to be involved sacrificially loving, even when it hurts. It could be a, a supervisor at work, a teacher that seems unfair, a classmate who is a bully, a parent or a sibling. Secondly, we see that nothing will hinder God's work. What happened to Stephen was tragic and wrong, and yet God uses it for his purposes. In the context of Acts, we see that it led to the shift in gospel witness from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria. This text guarantees gospel success. So this can motivate us to live for God and for his glory, even when it appears that it will lead to inconvenience, inconvenience in our lives. One day, so in this text, we move from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and one day God's kingdom will be made manifest in all its glory at the return of Christ. And so this text fits in the, that heading in to that direction. Stephen's death shows us also what matters the most. We need to make our relationship with God our priority. We must value our relationship with God over a career. I know that's hard to hear sometimes. Worldly success, controversial, even our children's grades. Apparently, even life itself, according to this text. In the meantime... We get to enjoy the eternal life that we already have today. We know that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. And one day he will also stand to judge us as he welcomes us to be by his side. Let's pray.